Welcome to the fifth episode of the Product Weekend Podcast Season 2, powered by Productized. This is where we meet the inspiring people behind great products. My name is Romoita, and today we have with us Mirella Moose, founder and CPO at Product People. Mirella had an extensive experience consulting in product before she started what's now one of the most successful product management consulting companies, Product People. Besides being the founder of Product People, Mirella is also a sci-fi fan, women in tech advocate, and a super analytical critical thinker. In this conversation, we talked about her career, the definition of success in product management, and the future of tech, among many other interesting topics for any product person, consultant, or entrepreneur. By the end of the episode, you have some book recommendations from her. I hope you enjoy the episode. So, you grew up in Romania. What did young Mirella aspire to become in life? I guess young Mirella didn't have a lot of the usual ideas of becoming an astronaut or doctor. To be honest, I also don't remember a lot. Hmm. I, I guess back in the days, engineering well, was still seen as a, a job family with a good trajectory. Mm -hmm. And I remember that was also part of the reason my parents saw that I was good at math and nudged me in that area. Um, which so led it was nudging from your family that led you to computer science as well? And also being able to, to understand what's happening there. Yeah. I had very good grades in math. Uh, I was even in one of the regional Olympics challenges, um, got third prize, but I forgot hmm. it what. So, <laughs> so I wasn't the best, but wasn't also pretty bad and right. I, I saw that probably I was lucky that my family encouraged me in, in these directions because there were quite a few number of women and in high school there were more women in the English and science math classes a mm -hmm. uh, bunch of uh, let's say you you could select various things that you want to, to take as classes. Mm -hmm. And there was a very good distribution of... And when we went then in the next four years at the university, there were only 2% women. So something happened between high school and university that people didn't go towards, uh, towards computer science anymore, despite having mm -hmm. a lot um, so of So you saw of that women. the skills were there within your peers, but still they were not choosing this path. Maybe because of yeah, culture. That, that's my assumption. Maybe they were interested in other topics or maybe there wasn't that much support for uh, this uh, trajectory. Mm -hmm. Right. So you did your master's in computer science. And from what I saw in your LinkedIn, you never actually worked as a developer. Yes. Um, the, the, farthest, the closest I came to that was QA automation. Mm -hmm. which developers wouldn't call that you're a developer. Uh, so I, I did some of these things in Python um, or Selenium. Right. But but it's not actually building things. It's more trying to, to, break, to break the them. things <laughs> other people uh, build. All right. Which was also how I got interested to some degree in product management because some things didn't make sense. And I wanted to go beyond just pointing out some mistakes Mm -hmm. But into, hey, we could also approach this a different way. We've missed this complete uh, area of the, the user experience. Right. Or, or this could have been thought out better. Mm -hmm. and so that was your trigger to get into product management? Yeah, I didn't even know what product management was. Um, mm -hmm. Back in the days, this was also called business analyst. And while I was at Avira Antivirus, who was recently bought by Norton, 
or one of these analysts left. Um, I remember it was also due to performance and mm-hmm. they were working on, let's say, the internal version of Facebook at work where okay. you, you would have uh, people's birthday, you would have a timeline of things that happen, you would see who reports to whom. Mm-hmm. In hindsight, that probably could have been purchased by a third party, not, not necessarily built in-house. Mm-hmm. But it was still a fun assignment to to work on, gave me a lot of visibility internally because my stakeholders were all the employees of this company, mm-hmm. including the German and the Romanian office. Okay. Uh, and the, due to proximity, the Romanian office sometimes got a bit more priority in a sense that we had even integrated the lunch ordering hmm. Lunch into that, system. yeah. So the the company would provide a free lunch for everyone, and each week the menu would change. And we had that that you would select what you're getting by a certain time of the day, else you would get a, a default mm-hmm. option or 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 none, depending on your settings. And then that 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 would come over there. So that there's also a lot of interesting interactions where people would say, "Well, I haven't gotten the lunch scheduling email, so then I'm now hungry because <laughs> I haven't selected what I wanted." Okay, and cool. and then trying to reverse engineer and it's like, well, maybe because... And at some point, we would even go to someone's computer and say, okay, let, let's see. Did you really not get this email? Oh, no, it was actually filtered out because they were filtering for some keywords. Mm-hmm. So I guess those are my very early foray into product management and talking to users and getting feedback from mm-hmm. them. And I think I was quite lucky to have this accidental setup in, in the company, mm-hmm. um, especially dealing with a B2B tool because my users and customers were in the office with me and, right. and so there was doing no lack. a lot of discovery every day just going to the office. Yes, and, and if you've dealt with Eastern Europe, the, uh, people, they're very generous uh, at complaining. <laughs> <laughs> so the discovery happens sometimes in, in the elevator or when just going to grab a coffee. People, people will have requests or complaints um, and, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So, so it was quite quite great fun. And, nice. and then I, I officially transitioned into that role at another company. All right. So before we get into that experience, you also did an MBA, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that was pretty much right after graduating from computer science. Mm-hmm. Why, what, what was the rationale behind that? Do you, also, do you think that's... A, interesting move for someone that no. wants to go into PM? So I, I wouldn't recommend it right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, aside from meeting interesting people, and I'm I'm aware that a lot of people would invest in an MBA somewhere um, at the brand name university, either to get the brand or to build up the network if there mm-hmm. are in-campus or on-site interactions. Mm-hmm. So if, if that's, that's why you're doing it, at least be honest about it. From a content perspective, there were a few classes that I found interesting, but there were also a lot that were not. Mm-hmm. I would say maybe it got my CV a bit noticed, although back in the day, there wasn't a lot of competition for people wanting to transition to PM. Okay. At, at least right now, if we put a post on Associate PM job ad, we need to take it out after a few days. Otherwise, we won't be able to <laughs> respond in a reasonable amount of time to all the applicants. Could, could be also a factor of the job market. But mm-hmm. back then, there, there wasn't even awareness about this role. So, yeah. so we're talking about 2012-ish, mm-hmm. uh, so like 10 years ago. So I, I wouldn't recommend that. I wanted to promote out of the individual contributor role somehow, which right. actually the PM 
transition didn't help me because in when I was doing QA automation, I was already team leader uh, okay. of a very small team of two people. And when you moved to product owner, you were back product at the manager. Yes, even team. there, I was lucky to not be called a product owner. I'm, okay. I'm very happy. There was uh, the the first official transition was to a, a company that was based between Bay Area, Bucharest office for a, a, most of the dev and product team. And also Belgium. Then, then they later sold to Pandora. It was mm-hmm. an interesting, um, attic focused on the music or audio streaming industry. All right. And back then, do you already have it clear that you wanted to grow into, like growing this profession of uh, product management or you were just seeing at something that you were enjoying at the moment and it was not clear yet that it's where you wanted to, to grow? Yeah, I enjoyed it based on that experience that I had. And mm-hmm. because I saw that the people giving these directions were doing it poorly from my my superficial okay. perspective, and I felt that there were a lot of judgment that was missing. And sometimes they didn't have a strong follow-through. And you, you know when it's when you're also look <laughs> it's sometimes this bias when you're looking at some people doing something and you think, oh, this is so simple. Why are they not doing X or Y is this mm-hmm. happening? And then you do it yourself and you understand how much more complex this was. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it was one of these moments. And I had this realization as well when I was mentoring someone back in 2015 to transition from QA also into a PM. In Back then, um, in 2015, we were at uh, Kaufta Bonial, uh, which is part of actual Springer. So actual Springer is one of Germany's largest media um, companies uh, with properties uh, or products doing anything and everything in media, from from newspapers to right. discount shopping apps, and and that was that was what we were working on back then. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is what the QA person told me as well that when when she saw me from the outside, it seemed like it's this person running around the meetings. Uh, mm-hmm. Wally seems busy, but it's not very clear what what she's doing. So maybe probably I should have done better as a PM to explain the value that I'm bringing to the team. Right. It was 2015, seven years mm-hmm. ago. So I, I hope now I'm I'm doing a better job <laughs> as explaining uh, what what I do. That's great. But that was the outside ex- experience. And then when this person also transitioned into PM, she was like, "Holy moly, this, <laughs> yeah, is, this is so difficult. Very complicated this, this like I'm overwhelmed with the amount of information and requests and." things that are all happening at the same time on which I need to decide or have an opinion on or make a decision on. Yeah. You had a role as VP of product. What was that role about? Oh, that, that one was a long time ago. Mm-hmm. I just probably would be um, head off or director equivalent as mm-hmm. I, I had uh, profit and loss responsibility, uh, but the team was relatively small, um, around... 15 to 20 people in in from development, customer success, and marketing. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- this was uh, at a company based out of Dubai who mm-hmm. was building, I wouldn't call them ventures, but we could call them product lines, right. launching them in a certain market, trying out a few things to, to see what sticks, and then also mm-hmm. mercilessly killing them <laughs> and <laughs> moving right. people um to the next gig. Um, mm-hmm. it, it wasn't much more different than what Rocket Internet would do if you're familiar with a German company who would see that in okay. a certain market, this type of product is taking off and doing well. Let's look if this product is also in the Middle East, whereas Rocket Internet was looking, let's let's see if this product is in Europe. 
-hmm. And then let's launch it for Dubai, like a marketplace for handyman. And <coughs> see how we get traction by mm -hmm. buy some ads, try a few experiments or tactics. So it was kind of imitating products for different markets and trying to launch them there. Yes, basically. yes. Mm -hmm. I see. Cool. And at this company, you say it's based out of Dubai, so you were working remotely. Did, yes, did there was also a local office in Bucharest. We mm. didn't need to go to it all the time. It was okay. also a relatively small office. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you started working remotely before it was mainstream. Yeah, before it was cool. Uh, uh, also with uh, at the company, uh -huh. as management was in the Bay Area. Okay. Uh, so okay. that, so that you already had that experience quite, before. Yes, mm -hmm. and and that was the the decision makers and also the contact persons uh, I needed to be in touch with mm -hmm. quite often. Yeah. So on one hand, we'd have the development team in Bucharest who I could meet in person. Uh, but then the most, my most important stakeholders, uh, I was always meeting US. them okay. back then. I think it, we were doing Skype. So, so it mm -hmm. was long time ago. I, I remember right. Skype, if not, not something else. And do you think having these early experiences, um, influenced your decision to start a fully remote, uh, company that you were working remotely for a long time? And you saw that it worked for you? That That's a good question. I also saw that it worked when I started contracting. Mm, as okay. part of it, I was doing on-site. Part of it, I was doing it from the office. Mm -hmm. Maybe it also comes with being somewhat introverted. Not, mm -hmm. to, the, not to a point where it's um, hurting my ability to work. But I do get more tired if I am in a noisy room surrounded by people and yeah. I'm so doing work. Like be working by yourself in a quiet environment. Yes. Mm -hmm. And also I prefer that the interactions with people are more meaningful in a sense that we have a okay. conversation. More uh, purposeful. Mm -hmm. And if we have a tactical meeting, we could also have that online and take some meeting notes and then mm -hmm. have some tasks afterwards. Yeah. If it's something where you are working on developing the relationship, then indeed you should be in person. And this yeah. is also our philosophy at Product People. If our clients are organizing a team building or if we're doing workshops to align mm -hmm. or anything that requires more high bandwidth uh, yeah. interactions, then we recommend that these are in person. If it's day-to-day -day daily stand-ups or regular mm -hmm. uh, meetings, then everyone can work remotely. And potentially okay. we could also try doing that async mm -hmm. in, yeah. in some cases actually there's a, a quote from marty kagan from his book inspired that when i read it i was a bit shocked that he was saying it which is uh all other things being equal a co-located team is going to substantially outperform a dispersed team that's just the way it is what are your thoughts about his thoughts on, on sure this topic? I, I remember reading that um that that he also has this part with mercenaries versus uh, missionaries and mm -hmm. we could consider ourselves as an agency we're a bit more on the mercenary <laughs> side yeah. for, for the obvious reason. I believe he slightly updated that quote after mm -hmm. the pandemic. So mm -hmm. um, I, I think it was in the published book. All right. I, I still agree with our approach more. Um, but doesn't mean we're for everyone. Mm -hmm. And um, I know people who, even through the pandemic, expected their team to be on-site. Yeah. And... Each company is successful in its own way. Mm -hmm. I felt for product people, this is not only about my personal preference, 
but it's also something that good talent wants. Yeah, and that's we true. needed a competitive advantage. So we're looking for exceptional individuals who can perform above baseline mm-hmm. in most, if not all of the organizations that we introduced them to as interim product managers. Right. So and, they need to be above the... And smart people want this type of perks where they mm-hmm. maybe want to do their laundry or maybe want to work two weeks from Mallorca when it's mm-hmm. very bad weather and it gets dark at half past three in Berlin. Right. And that's the, something they could get with us. Yeah. And as it's long good. as we're able to monitor performance and to support people and keep the team cohesion while distributed, then I don't see the benefit of having an office. It's actually worse for the environment. Can be counterproductive. From, from uh, let's say, environmental footprint perspective mm-hmm. that you're making people commute every day. Yeah, um, true. Then it's an extra cost for the company, which we can then give back as perks. Because, for example, for the people hearing this, we're recording it from a team workation mm-hmm. happening uh, near Lisbon at a really cool retreat area with pool and sauna mm-hmm. and great food, which we could afford to do for the team, considering we've been distributed first. So we yeah. can then have a bit more budget for for this right. type of right. um That's a very, activities. very relevant point. So, yeah, you were... We are getting into it, your current company, Product People. For the listeners that have never heard about it, what is it all about? Our mission is to help companies discover and deliver great products faster. Mm. We do this in two ways. One is through our knowledge sharing events, which we have weekly live streaming to YouTube and sometimes LinkedIn. Mm -hmm where we have product leaders or exceptional individual contributors sharing their knowledge, tactics, and learnings. And the way we make money is through interim product management services. Um, A typical use case would be parental covers, uh, when a product manager or product leader goes on a parental leave for three, six, Mm -hmm. sometimes nine months, depending on which country in Europe they're in. Uh, Or when one of your PMs wants to take a sabbatical mm-hmm. uh, or they're leaving the company and it will take about three months to hire a new person, mm-hmm. then we could take over during this time, onboard a new person so you wouldn't experience any slowdown, misalignment, right. and all mm-hmm. the bad things that happen when, when a PM is not there and the team loses momentum. Mm-hmm. So you're just um, tapping in when there's a person missing in the company or do you also have other types of placements for like mission specific or when the company wants to do an extra effort and they need more yes the, the, mm. these parts we've covered as well they're a bit more complex to explain but we did have mm-hmm. in a few cases where the client needed extra capacity for certain initiatives within us a team and they had an existing pm and developers so what they did is branch out a smaller team out of that Mm-hmm. made out of contractors. So I was supporting back then as an individual contributor on the contractor side. And then they had developers coming from a different vendor, uh, which yeah. we would also recommend because then each of us was aligned with the client themselves rather than being aligned with ourselves yeah, um, and less with the client. Uh, we've uh, we've been working at that specific client on a few initiatives to bring between one and two million Incremental revenue 
um, in from the next year onwards. And then mm -hmm. we offboarded and handed over to the existing team after these initiatives were completed. All right. Right. That's quite interesting. And going a bit to the history of, of product people, it didn't start that long ago, but I'm curious to know a bit more about how it started, how the idea came and also how your role has evolved over time. Sure. How it started is I wanted to start a company and also a company where mm. I would like to show up to. Yeah. Um, and that may come a bit later that we have a very strong focus on our culture and being a very supportive and performance-driven mm -hmm. company ourselves. Right. While looking for opportunities in the space, I ended up doing a bit of contracting. And what I did notice on the contracting space is that the people in charge of product management, sometimes they would be supplied by development companies, which meant that they were not aligned with what the client wanted. And mm -hmm. how did I know that? Because... I myself was supplied by one of those uh, companies, mm -hmm. kind of pretending to be one of theirs, but I was just subcontracted for, for this topic. Right. And the indications I've received was have as many backlog items as possible for the developers and help us sell another development team here. Mm -hmm. So I it see. wasn't anything that would have given a better outcome for the client. In fact, the client hadn't even decided what's going to be the take rate on a marketplace they were building, um, mm -hmm. how are they going to take payments, um, and, and a few other, I would say, core functionality for the product, mm -hmm. and kept getting distracted with different modules to build and different things, which was great for this uh, shop, because then they would have a lot of things to build yeah. in parallel. It wasn't very great for our launch date that kept moving and mm -hmm. uh, that that also made managing scope creep relatively hard because on one hand, there wasn't any incentive to push back as right. of course you would want to do more because then for most of these uh, companies, the rev 80 to 90% of the revenue comes from developers or all the other mm -hmm. functions are just augmentative. Uh, I so I, I pushed back on on some of these parts, or at least taking things out of milestones and saying, okay, for what we're looking at right now, let's trim it down, let's trim it down some more, mm -hmm. and so on. And that was the best I could do there. But in other cases, later on at product people, when we didn't have this constraint of who's paying our invoices, because mm -hmm. that was the client, um, we've canceled two products in different occasions. On one, it was a mobile app that didn't have enough users, the, the it was one of the mobile apps at that specific client. Uh -huh. And one of our senior PMs decided to make himself redundant, cancel mm -hmm. that app and found a new adventure for the development team within the client's company. As another right. one of our PMs had finished a successful experiment uh, with building a new proposition via no-code tools. And now they wanted right. to go forward to actually build it up. Mm -hmm. So and there's this not team, that incentive of selling more developers it allows you to to actually think what you want to good do decisions um i would say also to some degree cheaper decisions because yeah. in in this day and age you can build a lot of things with no code tools mm -hmm. um you can also decide to embed a, a third-party provider you can also decide to not build it at all right. and all of those are options you should be Considering, unencumbered yeah. by other incentives to think about 
Mm-hmm. Um, it's possible that these other companies would also come up with these conclusions. That mm-hmm. was not my experience. Uh, so I'm also just talking from limited right. uh, data points. Mm-hmm. Um, and another part that I've noticed that was this gap at the clients who do have some traction and, and considerable budgets that they would get a tier one or tier two management consultancy, which creates a pretty deck um, with a lot of ideas, which are not bad if you'd implement mm-hmm. them well, but then this deck just gets thrown over to a relatively junior or clueless dev yeah. team who then, uh, and sometimes uh, an even more clueless product team, who then just takes it by heart and by each line item and they think how they build mm-hmm. that into a future, right. into a feature. So also the difference with product people is that it's together with the company and with the teams to not only figure out what to build, but also follow up and help with the implementation. And and have a filter for all of that. Because mm-hmm. yeah. uh, you, you can have a great strategy if you fail at figuring out the tactics to test various things and to understand the go-to-market or to understand how you're adapting what whatever it is that you're doing there. Mm-hmm. It can just fail miserably despite the, the strategy being uh, good. Or vice versa. There's mm-hmm. one of these memes going on uh, the consulting subreddit, um, you know, with the laughing cat, where a woman mm-hmm. points yeah. uh, at the cat accusingly. Uh, so it's one like McKinsey, BCG, or Bain type the, is the, the um, woman screaming at the cat and said, you messed up the implementation. And then the other person is labeled as Deloitte or, or, or another large implementation provider and said, mm-hmm. no, you messed up the strategy. And mm-hmm. the client uh, says, oh, my whole business is messed up. Mm-hmm. And then the laughing cat is labeled as the intern. And the intern said, um, where do I plug in my laptop? <laughs> and what's the billing code for this training? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so in, always, in any case, the, there could so be a party. So you're there for both parts. And well, we would see ourselves more as a bridge between mm-hmm. strategic and tactical right. parts because this is what product management is. And in some parts, you you have more tactical support. In others, you don't. It depends also on how sophisticated the company is or doing product management. And also, uh, realistically, what's happening at that point in time? Because they could be very good at that, and then there's just some sort of meltdown happening due to various reasons, and mm-hmm. you need to then get more hands-on, or things are going well, and you have more time to do extensive discovery or other topics. Mm-hmm. Cool. And how do you see, so more on the individual contributor side, so the people that you have at product people that are placed in these companies, how do you see the difference between their work as an interim or consultant product manager uh, and the role that they would have if they were like permanent in the company? That's a very good question. And, and we're also making people aware when we hire them because we look at people who are excited to work on multiple companies, multiple products, in a Mm -hmm. very short amount of time. And that's sometimes specifically the reason they join product people. To look behind the scenes at some of Europe's greatest product companies Mm -hmm. and then decide what you want to do uh, later on. Right. Um, Either either grow within the product people um, organization and earn more, get profit participation, have um, more and more people reporting to you or move back into the industry in a specific company or domain that you like. Yeah. With our experience helping your CV getting screened 
past the, the recruiters who sometimes just look for keywords or a certain industry mm-hmm. and and then having a lot of ex- experience and ideas you can share during the interview process to get you there and this is also what we've noticed to our alumni is they usually go um at a higher level than they've been within our organization or at the same level in way larger companies. So let's say one of our senior PMs mm-hmm. left as senior PM at the Series D company that's about 600 people. Cool. So we're that's super interesting. Cool. So do you also help in this transition out of products people? Like is, is it also in your best interest that the people that you have within the team leave for a better thing afterwards? Uh, of of course, because this then helps us attract good talent for mm-hmm. ones that are regretted attrition. We're also helping that they get some interesting experience within indus- in the industry and mm-hmm. potentially come back later with us have, after having learned that also the grass is not much greener <laughs> on, on, on yeah. another side. Right. Uh, but of course, because for us, it's not just the clients who are an important stakeholders. The client is one stakeholder. Another stakeholder is our employees, which means also that we need to do well by them. And then, of course, our shareholders and the product community at large for which we are doing all the knowledge sharing and trying to advance it as a whole. Mm-hmm. Right. So... Uh- we had one experience, uh, actually it was just this weekend, but I have the feeling that I will not, not forget it, uh, at least in the near future, that when we met, I was talking about a guy and I was saying that he was doing a super cool job and you said, great, how do you know that he's doing a, a good job? That, that's a very good point. So for you, how do you define that a product person is doing a, a good job? How do you measure their success? I would assume this question is for our people and mm. this would be a per, one of our PMs um, that is un, has an ongoing engagement at our clients. Mm. One would be what level are they at and how are they performing according to this level. Then the other part we would look at is how complex is the client environment and how complex is what we call the mission. So this would be, let's say, mm-hmm. a parental cover for for someone on the on a consumer app. All right. So that would be for us the mission mm-hmm. uh, and the client would be the stage of the company, the maturity of the product function there, the certain events that are happening, let's say they're maybe pushing towards a funding round or they're having a restructuring or 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 or, mm-hmm. or they're merging with another company. Yeah. This will all be complexifier. So if, let's say if our we have a product manager one which would be a mid-level PM Mm-hmm. And they at some point may struggle a bit with some complex stakeholder topics, especially in an M&A setup, merger yeah. and acquisition, mm-hmm. then that wouldn't be necessarily against them. So some people can outperform that function because that one we would see more towards product manager two or senior product manager one yeah. that they can navigate seamlessly very nebulous setups mm-hmm. with very complex stakeholders. Right. So you always need to measure the performance or the success of someone against their experience and the context they're in. Yes. And mm-hmm. for, for that, let's say this is still not good enough for the client, right? Because they they are paying us to do a good job. Mm-hmm. How do we ma- uh, manage to do that? Is that um, we look like body leasing, but we don't do body leasing. So it means that the PM1 um, is we're just charging for one function there and we are having three people support the client 
uh, while keeping the first, the main point of contact as the product manager that I've been using in this example. So that mm -hmm. product manager comes with an associate for tactical support from anything to meeting notes or running smaller ceremonies or preparing material that then the PM reviews and enhances or just sometimes helping that material look better. Mm -hmm. There are so many things that they can do and so many examples. And then on the seniority side, um, they are mentored and uh, managed and, and monitored Supported, by yeah. a group product manager or VP of product. Okay. And this means that they have seen already this type of scenarios so they could support our product manager by understanding that the mission they're in is a bit more complex than their level and giving them the advice and tactics on how to manage the stakeholders better, how to bring clarity, mm -hmm. potentially also reviewing and helping them enhance different materials from roadmap or planning or, or workshops or proposals they're building up there. Mm -hmm. Right. And one of the things, so you were one of the, of the guests in our product weekend. And one thing that you, I remember you mentioning is the, um, that you can look at su success uh looking at the outcomes uh at the the processes that they put in place and also at the speed that they mm -hmm. they deliver them yes um how should a, a product manager prioritize one of these against the other in in specific contexts do you think it's there are some contexts that require more focus on speed other than absolutely more focus on processes so i i would get uh, the focus on speed depends also on the size of the company and who your main stakeholders are. If you're working with a founder at a Series A company, speed is going to be critical unless mm -hmm. you're building a hardware product or something where decisions are less reversible. Right? So if you mm -hmm. think, um, I, I guess I borrowed this from Stripe, you should think of decisions. Are they a revolving door? You know, is is it super yeah. easy to come back from that one and mm, say, wait a minute, we switch. Amazon, the one way and two way doors. Yes, yeah. yes, mm -hmm. it's probably it was Amazon and not Stripe. <laughs> yeah. I've heard it in a lot of places. Mm -hmm. And at that early stage, it's it's good to make as many decisions fast as possible and then just pivot back because the organization is more uh, at the risk of dying in obscurity rather than dying because you're now did a change that's too big to implement. Mm -hmm. The higher you, you go within organization size or the less reversible the decision, then you need to sacrifice some speed or the organization itself will slow you down due to having more stakeholders uh, involved, um, right. other departments that need to take in what you're doing and roll it out mm -hmm. or you need to roll out something in multiple markets. These markets may have their legal uh, complexities or mm -hmm. or local preferences and so on and so forth. So with so in those with cases, size, you probably complexity need to put more focus in processes and making sure that exactly. things are running. I think even at an early stage, what made us quite efficient and low maintenance, which is also one of our principles at Product People, mm -hmm. is that for some key processes, we created them from the beginning and then we also hired people smart enough to fill in the blanks and not need to, to need a six-pager document for, for every decision. Mm -hmm. right. But having some baseline um, ways of working is, is always good regardless of the size. 
um, it's just hard sometimes. You, you need to understand the setup there and what's working for you and have that as a, as a base rule without getting boggled down. It's like, no, we first need to align on our waves of working for two weeks. Yeah, that's probably going to get you fired um, mm. with like many of the early stage Berlin founders that I know. Whereas this will get you fired at um, publicly listed companies who expects to have quite a big clarity on process mm-hmm. and how you're doing things before you start doing something. Right, right. So it depends a lot on the on the context of the of the company. Um, let's jump to to one thing that I saw that uh, is interesting. I believe uh, you do quite a lot of mentoring. I mean, you've done it. Tech stars at Product League, Founder Institute. How did you end up doing this this kind of activity? And I how, was invited to yeah, do it. Yeah, and how it? How do you think it? It do you think it helps you in your position as a leader? It was very refreshing to mm-hmm. not have any strings attached to it. So, for example, at a client. I would also be in charge of how are we going to make it happen. We need mm-hmm. to flesh out all this advice that we're doing. I need right. to double check it. Whereas if there's a company that's very early stage, has only four developers, the founder is quotation marks, the product manager, then sometimes I notice very, they, they don't have basic things covered. Mm-hmm. So then you feel that it's very easy or that you're very smart because you say, well, have you looked at, um, doing customer development interviews or ha- have you already done this and that and mm-hmm. have um, it's it's way more easy than anything we have to deal with at clients mm-hmm. and more recently i'm also having my people come and do this mentoring session all right because in a way it's also quite relaxing um compared mm-hmm. to the client work where you're now in charge of everything and you have all these responsibilities of alignment and um to some in some companies also um, having the delivery team right. uh, ship that. In others, not delivery team has the responsible for the delivery, but mm-hmm. not, not always. Mm-hmm. So I would say it's quite fun and it's potentially helping out a few founders do better uh, right. with, with their new startups. That's cool. And for yourself, have mentors played a role in your life? Did you have mentors throughout your career that helped you... Uh, grow and even launch when you launched product people or you were more independent in that sense i would say i i take inspiration from a lot of people Mm -hmm. maybe when i was growing up having mentors wasn't something that i was aware it's possible Mm -hmm. i see Uh, also as women you don't have a lot of people at the same gender so i sometimes would imagine well you know this this would do or this part of this person's behavior or personalities are useful to look at and you don't need to like the whole package. Mm-hmm. And and I believe that's a very healthy way of doing things. Um, I've noticed in the writings of DHH, the founder of Basecamp and Ruby of Rails, mm-hmm. um, is that he's somehow against the trend in American politics and media where you either love someone completely and it's like your idol and your hero or mm-hmm. you just throw them away completely because of this thing they said and they did. Yeah. Um, if you look at a person more like a Swedish buffet <laughs> where there are some things you like and some things you don't want to eat or some things you did only if you're very hungry, mm-hmm. then you could take also the 
behaviors or actions or certain things they did at a certain time that you can copy or say, well, I can get inspired from that, Mm -hmm. rather than than looking at all of it, right? And I think the most vivid narrative is now around Elon Musk, right? He was the hero of the hour, now he's the villain of the hour because he fired some people at Twitter in a way that wasn't kind or nice. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, if you look, they offered the same severance package as Stripe did, but Stripe sent a nice letter when they did that and they got Mm -hmm. very good PR, for firing people, but everyone fired people. So the yeah. outcome was the same, was just the way that they ended up with the media coverage from mm-hmm. it. Can you maybe name a couple of, of these people that you look, look up to in product management? Maybe some people that are worth for the audience to check out their work? Sure. Um, in the past months or let's say years, I've had very good inter- conversations with Sam Love, um, ex CPO of WeFox, which mm-hmm. grew tremendously over the last years. Um, she also has a classical consulting background. Um, and basically having the view on these both worlds uh, helped a lot shape our conversations. Right. Also admire Jessica DeWald, currently director of product at Zalando. Previously, she was director of product at Omeo, where she worked as my stakeholder and champion within Omeo. Okay. I really cool. love the culture she's built. When, with her product and also development team mm-hmm. being very high involvement, high performance, while also being very friendly and cheerful towards each other. And and that's super hard to do. It's very easy to be high performance and cutthroat, how Amazon is usually pictured. And at least that was also the experience some people I've spoke with had there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can be very nice and very laissez-faire. And you know that there are a lot of nice and friendly people here but are also kind of useless so Mm -hmm. getting that sweet spot where you're all having fun and working hard and very productive with each other Mm -hmm. um but not uh, going at each other's throat or ending up just being mean or difficult it's it's a very very hard balance um so i admire jess for having Mm -hmm. seen her in action to do that Mm um another person would be Lucy McLean. I've worked with her on Zalando and I really liked how she adapted the um, culture that was within one business unit at at Zalando and made it tighter and more focused on doing things faster despite the larger organization having a lot of processes and guardrails. So in a Mm -hmm. way you could still have a fun, relatively fast environment while keeping tabs on the larger organization and adapting to their processes and their needs when these these are what you need to work with mm-hmm. at that point right. in time. So, so cool. that, that was also a, a very good example. And I think nice. the, um, the last uh, person but not least, <laughs> uh, uh, it's mostly because I've had fewer working interactions, uh, would be Georgina Smallwood, CPO of Tier, who I've watched in in her since 2020 when she took over mm-hmm. and i admire her for how she shaped the product organization there meaning bringing customer support under product bringing product ops under product it sounds crazy but product ops was under ops hmm. okay. um, as tier has a large fleet and a lot of physical operations so then the operation team was quite large and yeah, one and part of that was was there product was product operations, operations. Mm-hmm. Um, and more recently, also marketing, um, aside from the growth uh, 
function of marketing, which I believe should be in product, or also the demand generation part. Mm. And I've, I think that's, right. that's a brilliant achievement, considering the background that a lot of German and Berlin companies are less product driven. So product mm-hmm. would be the thinnest part of the organization that has the smallest headcount and sometimes a very reduced responsibility. And all of these other departments would then squeeze them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so she out. managed to stand, like make products, like find a place for product and that's encompassing these functions. Mm. And if you think about it, it makes sense because uh, having a, a high number of customer support tickets means mm-hmm. your product is messing up in some way. Yeah. So if it's your responsibility to fix it, then customer support is not going to be a stakeholder. It's going to be your problem Mm -hmm. to understand what's generating this uh, volume of uh, questions or complaints and to reduce it. Mm -hmm. What advice do you have for PMs in the early stage of their careers to become successful in the long run? Depends what successful means. Mm -hmm. Think what you like doing. A lot of people will say, yes, I want to become director of product or I want to become head of product or whatever title you find more interesting for people leadership. Mm-hmm. But you should be aware of also what that means because the higher the headcount or the higher up in, you are in your organization, your work is going to become alignment and performance management or mm-hmm. upskilling people. Right, so you it, won't be working on a product mm-hmm. at all. So you'll move from product management to people management at some point. Yes, yeah. and you should be aware if this is what you want to do, um, and you're going to say, "Well, but I want to be paid a lot of money." Mm-hmm. You could also be paid significantly as a principal or as an extremely senior product manager mm-hmm. uh, with domain knowledge in high demand areas. Right. Um, so things related to machine learning uh, or or currently health tech or biotech mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, are domains that are trending. So if you combine two of those, then you could be an individual contributor and earn on, on a level of a director in some sort in some types of companies. Right. Uh, so don't mm-hmm. uh, don't underestimate things that you actually like doing mm-hmm. uh, rather than taking someone's superficial definition of success Mm -hmm. because this is a high stressful job and if at some point you end up with a too significant share of things you don't like doing you're going to burn out yeah and that is not Mm -hmm. what anyone probably wants to do yeah so your advice from what i got it's mostly think critically about what you actually define as success and what you want to achieve and not just follow the career ladder or the obvious path to uh higher salary that's very very insightful thank you um right let's let's jump to a couple of questions about the future i know that you are a sci-fi fan thanks um i'm curious to know about what's your favorite app or digital product at this moment in time i would say reddit reddit nice more for augmenting information Uh, mixed Mm -hmm. with entertainment purposes and why is this so as in some cases it doesn't surprise me and when i want to relax in an evening Mm 
Mm-hmm. I don't want to go on Twitter and get distracted by the next flame war that, that mm-hmm. is coming out or f- find out that new horrible things have happened in the world. Mm-hmm. I, I just want to be able to lie down and sleep at night. So yeah. going on a subreddit about plants and seeing mm-hmm. like someone how a video of how their plant has been growing or uh, some very yeah. casual, low-key um, discussions has has been of great use for me. Same on the um, sci-fi subreddit. I've been lurking there for a while mm-hmm. and already have a list of interesting books I want to try out. Cool. Or if I get interested in a specific author or, or a specific book, then I can dive and subscribe to that subreddit. So for me, that's more interesting than news or Yeah, like Twitter. social media are too much uh, controlled by sensationalism and things that pop into... Exactly. And and in some cases, I've just had a very, very long day and I just want to unwind um, either by reading an offline book, so that will Mm -hmm. also be part of it, or just going to a place where the information that I'm getting is within some topics that I'm interested in. Without too many ads or too much friction. It's easier to to choose what you're getting than in other social networks. Yes, and Mm -hmm. I realized uh, how much more I like this option because you can subscribe in and out of certain subreddits Mm -hmm. uh, or you can just check that subreddit specifically if you don't want the aggregated part. Um, There are a lot of things that are way better now than all all the other options. Um, Mm -hmm. So I would say that's my favorite entertainment app for now or nice. just that's where cool. I want to read things. That's cool. And on the the downside of, of innovation, so for sure it has huge benefits for society at large, but what's one innovation that you hate? I don't know how we define innovation, um, but I would or say technology. For, the, for the tech industry, I don't feel we're doing very well and... I realized that when someone else said it. Um, I'm not sure if I should quote the person because it was at an offline uh, Mm -hmm. type of gathering. Uh, But he said, us as a tech industry, we're all paid very well and we have the track record of just shipping uh, buggy and many times useless apps. And Mm -hmm. we think we're saving the world or doing something incredible. Mm -hmm. And I agree with this perspective. We haven't done that much. If you look in some... Areas and in some cases, life expectancy has decreased. Yeah, so we're nowhere sure. near um, Im- improving health span. So it means the amount of time you are healthy and mm-hmm. can live a well-functioning life within your old age. Yeah. We're nowhere near increasing health span. Mm-hmm. We, we, you can just hail an, uh, a cab with your app. Cool. But that's, that's just basic currently, yeah, right? So yeah. I wouldn't consider this innovation. I would be happy to see innovation when you can help people not die of cancer or mm-hmm. prolong yeah. the life of our grandparents or parents. And That's anything else is just BS. Mm-hmm. Because the, the, the places where this life expectancy is decreasing are actually the places where there's most innovation or technology penetration, like the US and it's, well, the, the, the U.S. was also helped by one of the big consulting agencies uh, mm-hmm. with um, a pharma company that accelerated an opioid crisis. Yeah. And those those losses were also due to the opioid crisis. And right. then the, the lack of social support that anyone who's not considerably wealthy has, mm-hmm. in a sense, that 
Yeah. We all know the problems, you know, it's just like joke with a person that was protesting with an empty sign mm-hmm. and was asked why and say, well, we all know what the problem is. <laughs> and so I wouldn't g- dwell too much into US politics, but yeah. I think also in Europe as a whole, we're not doing that much for things that are quite meaningful. Mm-hmm. And tech ends up being just superficial business model of yet another e-commerce or yet another SaaS tool. And mm-hmm. I shouldn't be saying that because yeah. we make money through this type of clients, but I would be interested to see more of the things that mm-hmm. help the world in a tangible way. That's interesting. And do you look also for those types of clients as uh the responsible, the main responsible for product people? Do you try to find this type of products and, and companies and try to, to help them in that sense? Or it's something that you aspire we, we did to a few, do? Uh, we did a few pro bonos and uh, we did give significant discounts when working with sustainability clients currently. Cool, cool. that's interesting. Right, and still about this topic of, of innovation and the future, what do you think the, the world will look like in 50 years from now? Honestly, I have no idea, um, but I think we're not able to to stop global warming. Mm-hmm. So it's probably we will all need to, to move up north <laughs> a bit yeah. due to the temperature and, and the sea level rises. Mm-hmm. In terms I, of technology, do you see something that you think will dramatically change uh, it, it depends how, how this whole war plays out. The, there's mm-hmm. already a fragmentation due to political power and and you see also in the microchip industry right now that everyone is building up their own and there's some some part of tech that you're not allowed to sell to china or vice versa Mm -hmm. anymore yeah Uh, so it's possible that this fragmentation then accelerates uh, which means also it will then trickle down into any digital tools or products that we use Mm -hmm. but i can't say i'm a futurist or able to to predict how how this is going to shape shape us up. Yeah. I just yeah, hope always... we're trending towards you a utopian future rather than a dystopian one because yeah. this is also my favorite type of sci-fi that I like <laughs> reading and in general if you look in large trends humanity ends up slowly and slowly doing better for people. Mm-hmm. If if you think of what the kings of France had back in the days we have better luxuries than they have to, yeah, yeah, to some definitely. degree. Uh, just having in in many parts of the world clean water and being able to shower uh, mm-hmm. or, Not or having basic flu, medical kind of um, access. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, my hope would be that this improves and improves. And if we could churn out more technology that makes life better for a larger majority of people, mm-hmm. then we're on the right track. And yeah. because at some point this technology becomes cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, and then you can have everyone have access to it. Yeah, I th- I think it's super interesting because of the globalization. People feel that things are worse, but I think it's just that like it was separated geographically, and now it's coming together. And so people get the perception that it's getting worse, but if you look overall, it's actually getting better, at least on average. Let's hope so. <laughs> yeah. Right, let's get into our final questions. Um, what is something about product management that has surprised you lately? How many people are lacking critical 
businesses, not not mm. in a way that you should think of squeezing the last cents out of every user interaction, but more of thinking, how is this working in in the sense of, um, someone had a very uh, good way of saying that, is this a user problem? Is this a company problem in the sense that the company just wants to position themselves in this space? Is this an investor problem? Do your investors really want you to go there because they want the company in that portfolio? Mm-hmm. And so how how does this work and for whom is it important? And then also understanding the constraints and incentives of different departments within a company, n- not only that. So sometimes I hear PMs and maybe because I'm also in the LinkedIn bubble, it's so much focus on frameworks or how should we write OKRs and so on and so mm-hmm. forth. In instead of looking at just basics and asking hard questions, why are people buying? And if they're not buying, why are they not buying? And mm-hmm. what kind of cohorts does this work for? Who it doesn't. So people so focus too much on frameworks and on, tools on superficial things. instead of the principles that are driving or that make those frameworks work. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, I would say even uh, as a PM, you should look at thinking from first principles. There's the FS blog that has a lot of examples of mental models. I would say those are way better starting point than any of them. Any framework, mm-hmm. because then you have some sort of way of arranging your thoughts. Right. And and I'm saying that I'm surprised at that because I see the post trending on LinkedIn, and it's usually so much basic noise. And mm-hmm. I'm like, of of course, then I, I I would fire these people, and probably also this is why they're not doing so well at their jobs because <laughs> they just get distracted by silly things and by by doing. Uh, superficial thought leadership in, instead of looking extremely pragmatic, especially in this very hard time where everyone is discontinuing products, um, mm-hmm. reorganizing, if yeah. not shutting down whole companies. Mm-hmm. You you can't come in and say, oh, we want to do this UX Im- improvement. Yes, why do you want to do it? What what's, uh, what are you hoping to, to gain for the user, for the business, for the company, if you're doing that? Because if if you can't talk to to the people in charge of your um let's say your future to some degree within mm-hmm. that company in a way that they understand and that shows why you're valuable mm-hmm. there um then you're going to have a very hard time yeah right and what's one lesson from product management that you think everyone, like people even outside of product management, should know? One tactic that I've noticed other departments that are not product have um, liked to work with mm-hmm. uh, was jobs to be done because okay. it gives you a way of understanding the context in which um, a user uh, or a company, depending if you're B2C or B2B, mm-hmm. has a certain need or desire right and then what's the the desire outcome to mm-hmm. solve that so let's say yeah. when when it's and, and they have a let's say a way of writing this mm-hmm. when it's raining i want to understand what are the available transportation fast so that mm-hmm. i can get somewhere so that cool. that would be that's an interesting one for other areas as well yes yeah. we've we've had um good traction 
working with sales on that. So, so we basically understand what sales uh, says. And, mm-hmm. and same with marketing teams, especially in companies where these departments had a lot more power than product right. and had a lot of upfront requirements towards the product team that, that you got as big ticket items or big lists and trying to help get more information out of them in a way that, because they do have information. So I know a lot of people discredit sales, but sales talks all the time with the customers. They understand mm-hmm. why deals don't, don't, don't close and why some deals close. So unless you want to change your whole business to not be sales heavy, and of course, everyone loves now product-level growth because yeah. then that that would be a different approach. Even if you are a product-level growth company, you're still going to end up needing some high-touch sales if you're going for enterprise accounts or if an account becomes large enough for you to, to need to pay attention to it. Mm-hmm. But right. before you're at that stage, you pretty much need to leverage the sales team to give you all this information or give you access to the end client so you can get that information. So you mm. should figure out a way to talk to them in in a way that both of you understand each other. Right, right. That's a good one. All right, to, to wrap it up, um, what are your three favorite books? Or three books that you'd recommend to product people? Depending on which area you're working with, mm-hmm. I'd go for thinking in systems. So I, first of all, I'm assuming all of you listening to this podcast are aware by Inspired by Marty Kagan, Continuous Discovery by Teresa Torres, and so on and so forth. So I'll try to recommend books that are not the first the two, three options that mm-hmm. everyone who has learned about product management two days ago knows. Hmm. Uh, I would say Thinking in Systems. This is by Donella Meadows. Right. It's definitely helpful if you're in a PM at, PM at, I would say from Series B onwards organization where you need to understand how you're working with different departments or even companies or players outside of your company. Then never split the difference mm-hmm. from Chris Voss. I, I guess also a lot of people now say yeah. that it's it's great about. Actually, it's the one I I've just finished last week. It's a great one. A lot of applicable things to product management. A hundred percent, and and just life in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the other one, uh, thinking in bets or how to decide from uh, Annie Duke. Um, I would mm-hmm. say start with thinking in bets because the other one came afterwards and has a lot right. of things that repeat themselves. And the main takeaway from from this book, for example, is that you should look at your decision process, not the result. Because if you're looking from based on the result, you may just then work backwards to justify your decision. So, for example, you could get in your car and drive home drunk and have nothing bad happen to you or to someone else. Mm-hmm. And you can think from that that it was a good decision. It was not a good decision. And you can do all the things right and just have a bit of bad luck. And then you may not end up with the result that you wanted. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean it was a big decision, a bad a decision. Bad you need to look at what information did you have at that point in time? And if that decision was correct with the information that you had. Correct. And, and that has also helped me when dealing with mishires or things that didn't go so well, 
it's always easy to go back and also personally have done this to myself. It's like, how did we hire these people? And like, mm-hmm. what did we do wrong? We need to change everything. And then look back and said, no, actually, based on the information that we had and our theory at that point mm-hmm. that we're giving people more of a chance so we understand what works and rather not lose on good people who don't present them extremely well, uh, themselves extremely well in the interview process. We did a good choice because while casting that wider net, we also found these two profiles that then did very well inside the company. We also found some that didn't do well, but we were mm-hmm. aware that we're taking more risks and may have a bit more churn. Right. And that was a good decision. So uh, now since the um, candidate pool has gotten larger and larger due to the market downturns so of being a lot more available people on the market, we've gone to stricter criteria. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. But it's still back then it was a good decision and we we still found some wonderful people even if we also found people who weren't a good fit. Right. Cool. Um this I will definitely add it to my reading list. I haven't heard of it before, but looks very interesting. Uh all right, Mirella, thank you very much. It was a pleasure having this talk with you and hope you also enjoy. Cool. Thanks uh, so much, Joe.